All right, everybody, welcome to the Eternal Leadership Podcast. Uh, Steve, you and I just got done hearing Alan Platt from South Africa speak. Yes. And it was a powerful session. And I, and I kind of want to frame this up. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. What a delight to be with you. Now, uh, everybody out there, you, you, you haven't met Alan before, and that's because I'm an idiot. <laughs> Um, because I recorded Alan two years ago, one of the favorite episodes ever. We're actually using this handheld recorder uh, that's really fancy, and I totally screwed it up. So I brought Steve with me this time, everyone. Uh, but here's something that, you know, uh, Alan, you were part of creating a movement that affected the entire culture and the lives and the kingdom work in Pretoria, South Africa. And a series of events has brought you to some things you're doing in South Florida, and I kind of want to sit this up a little bit, because here's something that you shared that I think was so powerful. So everybody out there listening, wherever you are in the world, whatever's in your heart, imagine this. What if you personally could connect better to understand who God is? A.W. Tozer says one of the most important questions we can ask of a man is their understanding of God. And for me, that, that changed radically at my accident. Uh, understanding God as a loving father and a friend. I, I never understood him in, in that context before, Alan, before I was in his presence. I, I never connected those dots. And then how do we take that out into the world, right, to love God with all our heart, but also to love others? What does that even look like in a way that we can impact the world? And then you talked about the church, really from this context of, of our faith community. And there's so many different denominations from everybody listening, I mean, I think there's 33,000 Christian denominations. But imagine if our faith community was part of mobilizing, creating community, uh, mobilizing you individually, and, and then engaging you, and then modeling what you should be doing outside of the church, outside of the walls of the church. So not just on Sunday, but Monday through Friday. Right. And what we could do as a community to solve all the world's problems. Like, you know, I'm here in America and, you know, we're in the middle of the political season and we see all this stuff on the headlines and all this stuff globally and all this stuff and a lot of people are getting stressed. And you know what? God's up there looking right now going, I got this. He's smiling because he's got a plan. Now let's connect all of that with a passion and a vision to what we could possibly do to collaborate with the communities, the cities that we have, uh, things that are passionate on our heart and actually do some things that we can then go celebrate. And you shared this amazing framework that, I mean, I am just so energized right now because this is what I believe, what you, I, I believe I have a small part to play in something in, in this, in what you described. And it's the reason that God saved my life back at the accident years ago. I don't know what it looks like. And I love that you talked about just taking some small steps into whatever this might be. But with that, Alan, um, uh, just thank you for all you and your wife are doing. Your wife is here. And I'd love for you to just share what's on your heart because, man, this just, this kind of transformational leadership just pours out of you. Well, thank you. I uh, must admit, uh, listening to you reflect on some of the thoughts shows that you really listened and you sound like one of my friends. He says, Alan, I take all your stuff and make decent sermons out of them. And so... so I'll give you the credit the first time, Alan, after that. No, I'm kidding. After that, it's yours. After that, it's mine. You know, it's in a unique time in the history, I believe, of kingdom life where many, many institutions and leaders are coming towards 
the end of just serving their own ecosystem mm. into a kingdom ecosystem. And that's really what we believe God is prompting all over the world. Mm -hmm. That individuals and ministries that have significantly impacted in amazing ways are now suddenly realizing we need to find common ground and focus together to impact at another level. Mm -hmm. And um, I suppose that's what, what's stirring our hearts is to is to uh, energize the church at large, kingdom agencies all over the world, to come in alignment with what is God saying to a region, to a city, to a community, and how can we all play a role within that? Yeah, and you did an amazing job because, you know, some of these sound so big. Like, what, what can I do to be part of that? I remember, you know, just reading, you know, part, one of the things that Christ called us to do is disciple nations. How does one person disciple nations? Uh, so how does this, what you're talking about, how do we bring it down to actually, you know, the person, the individual, right? I totally believe, as I'm sure every other Christian leader knows, it's all about individuals that find the rhythm of God's grace within their lives. And you framed it, so well, speaking about these three dimensions, it starts with knowing God. It starts with this relationship of discovery of God's opinion over your own life. You discover the, your identity in Christ. That leads to intimacy with God, knowing God as Father, knowing His approval and His acceptance over your life, which then leads to impact or integrity in life. Mm -hmm. So it's it's those three dimensions of identity, of intimacy, and integrity that work together in this knowing God component of your life. But once that happens in your life, you have to come to the place where you realize God's not just working in me. He wants to work through me. Mm. And that takes you to the next dimension that we would just frame as loving people where you start recognizing that God wants to use you to touch other people's lives. And in that context, you have to grow in terms of an understanding of the compassion, the, the love of God for the people, and recognizing love as a value statement, uh, that when you value something, it evokes positive emotions. When you devalue something, it brings negative emotions. And in essence, love is a value statement. And God loves the world. And he values the world. And, and when you've done it to the least of them, Jesus says, you've, you've done it to me. And so that motivation of compassion, at the same time, recognizing calling on your life, knowing that God has purposed you and called you and wants to use you. And then contribution. He has entrusted things to you. You're a steward of something. And once you get those three dimensions in sync in your life in terms of uh, compassion and calling and contribution, you start living beyond yourself. But then you discover that God has an agenda with the world. And now you ask the question, how can I impact my world? And that leads you to understand a worldview of Christ being Lord of all. 
that you recognize your everyday life needs to be connected to your faith. So Sunday's faith must be connected to Monday's work. So the workplace becomes a place that is sacred, that is a, a place of, of ministry, a place of spiritual engagement. So those two concepts for many people are separate, right? They're separate and even not equal. Right. So what does it look like, do you think, for people listening right now to actually take those and, and weave those back together the way that they were designed to be? I suppose one of the biggest challenges is that we have been deeply influenced with a dualistic mindset. Mm-hmm. The spiritual and the natural, we've seen as two different worlds. And so the problem has been for many people to deeply understand that what I do every day is actually deeply spiritual. It, it's part of my expression of life in Christ Jesus. And I do not have to escape to some sacred space to be able to exercise my spirituality. I can exercise my spirituality in the midst of Babylon. That's the lesson the people of Jerusalem learned when they were taken out as exiles. And here they are praying, Lord, take us away here. We want to go back to Jerusalem. And the Babylonians say, would you sing us a song? You know, you guys sing such nice songs. And they say, how can we sing a a song in a strange land? They were saying, we can't exercise our faith and our spirituality here in Babylon. We need to go back to Jerusalem. Mm. That's how many Christians view their engagement. They see that spiritual things can only transpire within spiritual so-called spaces. Whereas every space is where God now wants them to exercise their spirituality. This is a big component to really see transformation happen in communities. Christians that get it that they represent the kingdom of God in the midst of Babylon. So those people listening who are sitting in a cubicle and feel like that cubicle really represents their exile to Babylon. Right. <laughs> you also spoke about the sacredness of work. So those folks that are like, okay, I'm trying to kind of figure out what that looks like for me personally here at my work, right? Whether I'm a doctor, a lawyer, a plumber, uh, you know, a coach, whatever it happens to be. What, 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 how do you help people see those, those really kind of come together, start singing? Well, it starts, I think, by recognizing that ministry, the concept of ministry, mm. is not just something that is located within the activity of a local church program. Of course, it finds its expression there too. But ministry is much broader than that. And so to understand that by being a faithful and a fruitful presence for the kingdom of God in your workplace, in that cubicle, is part of ministry. And once you start understanding that, you approach the everyday life in a different way. Because now suddenly I realize being a faithful presence means that I now bring the aroma of Christ into this work environment. So I represent the kingdom of God in that space. And I need to enter that space by 
trusting that that I will grow and develop in such a way that I can represent the love and the joy and the peace and the grace of God within that context. You see, it's no, it's not helpful if I enter my cubicle to share three scriptures, but I am the most difficult person in the office to to work with. It's it's not helpful. And so it's actually the, if you're the most difficult person and you share scriptures, that's going to make it worse. It's exactly. <laughs> that's exactly what happens. Yeah. And so we need to help our people to to get to the place where they understand they're not escaping into a place that just generates income for them to survive. They're going to a place of ministry. And they must ask, how can I become this faithful presence mm. of God within this space? And even a fruitful presence. Because the fruitful presence asks, how can I change that which is broken, that which is damaged in this environment that I'm in? How can I play a role to make it better? How can I bring the kingdom of God into this space? It just makes so much sense how you've laid that out, right? If, if I understand... You talked about knowing God, right? My identity, right? Really working on, and I think a lot of us are chained to a false identity that's holding us back from being used. I know that that is absolutely my story, right? We have to break these chains. And I had to do that in community with people like Keith here and Steve and other people, right? Intimacy, integrity. And then you talked about, then then that develops compassion. You start to connect to your calling. You look at the contribution I want to have. And all of a sudden, you're just showing up as, a, as the person God created you to be. You're showing up right. differently. And now you truly are going to be having that influence, that impact with those around you. Because you said something really important. It's not about, uh, what did you say? Something, sometimes when we have these really big vision things that start really big, what happens to them? <laughs> they become small. <laughs> they become small. <laughs> you know, the kingdom of God, Jesus said, is like a mustard seed. Yeah. Uh, and many times we underestimate something that starts small. But if God is in it yeah. and it starts small, it can grow to become a substantial influence. Many times we don't go over to action because we feel it's insignificant. But it's these small steps mm. in the right direction. Starting, as you said, with this knowledge of God's favor on my life, God's opinion on my life. You know, Jesus modeled that for us. Mm -hmm. It's interesting when you see just before Jesus moves into this time of his calling and his ministry, there is this moment where the father speaks over his life. This is my mm -hmm. beloved son. And the, Jesus experiences this validation from the father. Um, interesting when he goes into the desert and, and Satan tempts him, he says, are you the son of God? If you are the son of God, but he leaves out this word beloved because he knew the power of that concept mm -hmm. that if you know that God's smile is upon your life, God's acceptance is upon your life, God's grace is upon your life. We don't work for favor. We work from favor. 
And now because we know that we have the favor of God upon our lives, we now engage into this space called the world, fulfilling our calling. And so Jesus starts to fulfill his calling, not intimidated by anything around him because he knows the Father's a validation is upon his life. I just want to jump in here because this is significant where the rubber hits the road for a lot of people. They hear that, but they still think that they have to do to gain his validation approval. Because mm-hmm. the father didn't just say, this is my beloved son. He said, in whom I'm well pleased. And that declaration of God's pleasure over his son was before he ever did one thing in response to his calling. That's but people see that is that God needs to be pleased in me before I'm called beloved. They get it backwards. Would you agree? That's and the by the way, point. that's Keith Boyer, my good friend and pastor talking, who's here joining us. And that's exactly the point, because they're still thinking they need to do to gain that declaration of approval and pleasure. And the whole point is, the father declared that over his son before he did anything. So it wasn't based on his performance, it was based on whose he was. Can I share a personal reflection on that? As I've kind of, of looked course. at, the, you know, since being God's presence, I tell you, my, 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 my understanding of who God was changed immediately. And the hard thing for me, just with a lot of things that have gone in my life, is the human relationships I had. Right, the things that had to be earned. You'd bend over backwards. You still wouldn't get approval. You'd get, you know, you'd do amazing at, at something, and then the other person who you didn't think did as well, you know, got the recognition. And I and I know for a fact that I actually took that understanding of human nature, and I imparted that on God, and I didn't know how to pull the two apart, and I never heard about it, preached about, or talked about. So a lot of the times, I, I just being real, I'd read some of the stuff in the, in the Word, and I'd be like, yeah, that's awesome, unconditional love, and yeah, that'd be, that'd be neat, but I'm not that guy yet. I haven't earned that yet. So I, I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm telling you, that's where I, I, that's where I was coming from, Alan. Absolutely. I think that's probably one of the biggest issues in the Christian walk, because we're We've been trained to perform. Mm-hmm. And the problem with performance is it leads to more performance. And all it does, is it's an exhausting way to live because you can never really perform well enough to qualify. But here's the amazing flip, and that's what you've put on the table, Keith, mm-hmm. is to say, what if you function from this understanding that God's pleasure is already mm-hmm. upon my life? Yeah. And now I live from that smile of God over my life. If you read the the Gospel of John, 116 times in the Gospel, Jesus references his Father, which is an amazing reference. It's the second most after the book of Genesis, which is all about natural fathers, Mm -hmm. the lineage. This is all about having a spiritual father. And John tries to capture for us in the gospel of John the understanding of why Jesus was so different. Why could he live so unintimidated? So from this this vantage point of, of knowing 
that he's not intimidated by circumstance, by opinions of people, uh, by anything around him because he's so secure in the Father. And he starts writing that. He says, in him was life. And the life was the light of the world. And then he says in verse 12 of chapter 1, he says, for you that have received him, he has given the right to become children of God. And what John is actually trying to tell us is now look at Jesus' life. See how he lived his life. This is the right God has given you. It's not about achieve. It's about how well you receive. If you receive that which Christ has given you, you have the right to be a child of God. And that same validation that the Father gave over Jesus' life, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, is exactly the same reference that we live from. And the rest of John, you can go read it. Jesus consistently just says, the Father loves me. The Father loves the Son. I and the Father are one. I do nothing but that which I see the Father does. Everything is related to this relational engagement with the Father. And so, John, when when you started this podcast speaking about the importance of this intimacy with the Father, that is so key. Mm -hmm. If we talk about transformation, it is fundamental to this understanding. And if we don't understand that, we will enter transformation with a performance mentality, trying to once again go do stuff for God, instead of just living from this incredible relationship with the Father. Yeah, I mean, we think of, right, that we do things to try to get known versus, right, that's doing that work from that place of for favor, right? But if we do it at the place from favor, we're doing work to let God be known. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I was just saying yesterday as I preached at 3D Church, Keith's the pastor there, I said, I wonder if Jesus would have had a Twitter account. Because, I mean, if anybody could have had some killer shots and things to communicate, it would have been Jesus, isn't it? I mean, just think, you know, taking a selfie. Here I am walking on the water, you know. Hashtag, who needs a boat? (laughs) Or here I am with Elijah and, you know, hanging with the boys. You know, it's like Jesus had some moments he could share. Yeah. But it wasn't, that was never the issue for him. Mm-hmm. And he's constantly trying to say, see the Father. See the heart of the Father. Recognize this is what I've come to open up for you to enjoy. It's the heart of the Father. The Father bringing the family together again. And you're part of that. This I think it's important to understand that this is foundational to the fruit of the ministry that Alan has given leadership to for the past few decades. Because my first exposure to what was happening there in Pretoria, Johannesburg, South Africa was probably eight years ago, something like that. And I said, Alan, this is incredible. And I said, I'm pretty sure people are going to be contacting you to want to see and learn more. And he goes, oh, it's already happening. I said, but what most people will miss is the theological foundation that's underneath 
the fruit of this ministry. And he goes, well, that's already happened. And he, I said, well, tell me. He said, I just was on a call, and I don't remember at this point the time frame of that. It was in the previous couple of weeks. And he said, yeah, there was a lot of dialogue coming and going back and forth, and people wanted to come and check us out. And then they ended up asking more questions. And Alan said at that point in the conversation with this individual, but you need to understand this and start to point out some of this biblical truth and the whole connection with the father and the relationship and our identity. And they hung up the phone and he never heard from them again. <laughs> but, the, the, but that's so characteristic of our culture, isn't it? People want the fruit of our life without understanding the foundation of our life. And the reason I want to draw attention to that is because we're talking about city transformation and, and those type of things. And, but if we don't get the foundation right, the building won't be right. And I look at your life, Alan, and knowing your story personally from childhood, and so many of us miss this, and then we excuse it because we didn't have this ideal father figure in our life. Alan never had a dad in his life for a season. And so you're looking at a man who, or listening to a man, who is in a place where he's living out of this reality because he knows who his father is and his father's view of him, and he's not putting it off on a hurtful experience he had from earlier in life or from childhood. And so we got to throw away those excuses and realize that isn't what it's about. And we can go directly. And then if we want to know, well, what is he really like? Because I've had conversations with people that say, well, I just can't see God as my father. But Jesus, I'm, I'm cool with Jesus. I said, well, that's great. Let's start there. Because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So uh, thank you for that, Keith. And, and so I, I'd love to ask you this question. The, this personal transformation into accepting God as your, your true Father, right? Not just spiritual Father, but just Father, that intimacy. And, and I think there's so many people that I hear from, right? There's, uh, it, it, uh, it's, a, it's a deception, it's a lie that a lot of us believed that we're not worthy of that kind of unconditional love. And one of the things that just rocked my world to the core was I, when I was in God's presence in my accident um, and I first felt his love. I remember the first thought that went through my head was I'm not worthy of somebody loving me like this. Mm -hmm. But reflecting back on it, Alan... What was so clear to me was every, any, every, any and everything I've ever done in my past was not even relevant to the love that he ha already had for me and the relationship that he was had that he had with me. I wasn't that I wasn't aware of because I'm an idiot um, that he wanted me to join him in. And I would love just you or Keith, your thoughts on some of those people out there listening going, you know what? You know, I've killed somebody. I've done this. I've been part of this. I've made these decisions Right. I'm not, you know, some of those people that have this idea that maybe they're not redeemable or they're not lovable or they're not worthy of that kind of grace. Because I think some of this stuff, right, these individuals are talking about, you call them city changers. Um, I think this is where it all starts. And I think there's some strongholds that, that people are still holding on to. Unquestionably so. And unfortunately so. What has been sad is not just the people's experience of that. But in many ways, the church has reinforced 
that narrative, where we became subject to guilt and shame as the result of sin and the damage of, of what Adam and his choice has brought humanity into. But the reality is that far superseding the implications of the damage of Adam, mm -hmm. the triumph of Christ has come to reposition humanity. Because this is what Paul is writing in Romans 5, 17. He says, by the offense of one man, death reigned. In other words, guilt and shame became the driving forces of our lives. He says, but much more. Now, that's a powerful concept. Much more. I often joke and say I did a study of the word much words much more in Greek, and it means much more. In English. <laughs> <laughs> it just means much more. Much more. Listen to this. Much more. They that receive the abundance of grace. What does grace do? It totally addresses guilt. And the free gift of righteousness. What does righteousness do? It addresses your sense of wrong. Shame. So it makes me right. Makes you right. You see, shame is not the result of having done something wrong. Shame is a feeling of wrongness. Yeah. I am bad. I am rotten. I'm not good enough. Righteousness comes to give you a new identity. And so what happens many times in the church is we preach grace. People come to be forgiven. <laughs> But they never come to the place of being transformed mm -hmm. into the understanding of who they truly are in righteousness. So they continue to see themselves as the result of Adam's sin. You see, identity precedes activity. The way you perceive yeah. yourself is the way you live. Absolutely. And if you have the wrong picture of who you are, it's going to determine how you engage life. And, and we want to prove that identity that we have of ourselves to be true. Because it's hard for us. That, so, so we make decisions and do things, even if they're self-destructive, to prove this image right. to be true, even if it's a false image. There's lies that we've led into that identity that we've accepted to be truth. And that has been the... the that has been, you talk about the word transformation, right? That means permanent change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that has absolutely been what has been transformative for me through this process is God rooting, taking some of the stuff going, you've believed this your whole life. That's not of me. And we need to rip this out. And it's not going to feel comfortable because now all of a sudden I'm out of my box because this isn't how I've shown up before or acted right. or made decisions or reacted in the past. And this doesn't feel comfortable. And doing this in community for me was absolutely essential for success. But that's key, mm -hmm. doing it in community. Because there, there's two things I want to say. In the world of brain science, what they realize is that what we focus on is what we move toward and become like. Yep. And so if our focus when we're struggling is, well, I'm this whatever, and you fill in that blank. I'm this, you know, failure. I'm this... Uh, alcoholic, I'm this drug addict, I'm this whatever, you fill in that blank and then when you're wrestling with it, that becomes your focus and you'll become preoccupied with it and it drives you deeper into it because we move toward what we focus on. In fact, there was a true story. 
of, you know, the highway between basically uh, Phoenix and L.A. runs pretty fast in different places. And there was a guy that was losing control of, I think he was in a Maserati or something, and it was screaming. And the whole time, his, like, oh, my gosh, and about whatever it is, 180 feet apart are these big, massive utility poles, and he's thinking, don't hit the pole, don't hit the pole, and the pole's like two feet, but he's got 180 feet in between each of those two feet poles. Guess what he hit? The pole, because that's what he focused on. So we, yeah. we move toward that which we focus on, and then we become like that. And so that's the one thing that I think is massively important is if we're moving forward in transformation is what we choose to focus in on. The second thing is what you said is huge, John, and that is that you experience this in community. And everything that Alan keeps pointing us back to is the Father's love, the Father's love, the love of the Father, the love of the Father. And yet how much of that can be experienced in a vacuum or osmosis. It's usually experienced in the context of human relationship. And that was Paul's second prayer in the Ephesians where he said, you know, I kneel before the Father, the Father, from the whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches you'd be strengthened with power by his strength and might in your innermost being. And that together with all the saints... You'd come to grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep the love of Christ really is. I don't know as though we can truly experience in experientially that liberating love of God outside of authentic community. And that's the power of church done right. Mm-hmm. And so if you think there's two things the enemy has gone after to distort, it's the image of the Father and the reality of what he wants from a healthy church. Both of you just, you know, as we talked about this with community, you referenced church, okay? And and um, uh, I, I have some strong opinions on maybe, as you said, right? Church done right and church maybe not done so right. Yeah. Right? Some are gooder than others. How's that? Um, so... I would love for you, Alan, you, uh, how, when we're talking about church, right, how do you define that? What does that mean to you? Well, we're talking about a community of faith. Okay. Um, and I would much rather talk about healthy church than necessarily church done right, because a healthy mm-hmm. environment is conducive for life to flourish, mm-hmm. because you'll never get a perfect church because uh, it's people, are people. <laughs> <laughs> and so you know we will we'll never and I think part of the problem many times is we want to to so uh, get the church in a model of perfection and not necessarily of health mm-hmm. and and to me that's that's different because the the, the attempt to get this perfect framework, is many times part of our problem because that is the fuel for performance and everything else that drives this thing in the wrong yeah, direction. What, what program we should have, right. oh, when right. do we meet. Right. And, right. Right. Yeah. So healthy community obviously implies sharing of life together, but it also, I think, uh, the evidence of health in church is manifested in its missional intentionality. When it starts to recognize that we are called 
to be an influence within the context of our world. And that this is not something that is an end in itself. The program itself is not the final framework, uh, but that the church is the agency through which God wants to affect the world and its, uh, our communities. And if we don't get missionally minded within church, we, we find ourselves gravitating to just a, a framework of social uh, engagement and never really start to open the conversation. How could we affect our world bringing faith, love, and hope to our communities? Because that's what we do. That's what the church does to the world. We are the purveyors of faith, of love, and of hope. In essence, what we're saying is we take responsibility for the lostness, the pain, and the brokenness of our community. And we ask that question then, how could we collectively do more than we could have done on our own? That's why we are coming into a healthy community so that through this healthy community, we can posture ourselves in a way to be an influence and bring faith and love and hope to our community. And, and could you say more of that? Because when you were talking about this as a framework, um, you know, you talked about it uh, is, is about mobilizing us right into community, but also mobilizing us into kind of what we were meant to do, creating engagement and also from a church's perspective, modeling Right, what, what that looks like as we carry out our kingdom calling. And I, I'd love for you maybe even to maybe expand on that a little Well, bit. in the early years, for us as a ministry, uh, Doxideo is our ministry, um, local church, we asked the question, um, how could we frame this in a practical way in which we could effectively engage within our community? And we came up with this little model saying, what if we focused on these three concepts of mobilization, engagement, and modeling? And simply... And can I interrupt you? Now, when you say that we wanted to engage in the community, you, you were talking about um, missional intentionality. So right. as you came up from this framework, what was that missional intentionality that, that God had put on your heart that led to this framework? Well, I have a story of having engaged in leading a church at a young age and seeing incredible growth in the church. And one day having this moment where I was celebrating the fact that we had grown and this was a happening church and we were running multiple services. And I sensed how God challenged me that what I was celebrating was good, but it was incomplete. And that I'm just celebrating people coming to church, whereas God's intent is that I would equip them and send them from the church. And so this was a very distinct moment in our journey where, where we were deeply challenged to rethink, um, are we really being complete as a church? Because we're just celebrating the fact that, you know, we're growing and developing and, 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 and enjoying these moments of, of gathering 
uh, people coming together. And you replicate what you celebrate. Exactly. So if we celebrate yeah. more people coming to the church, we're going to get more of that yeah. without sending people out. And so today, you know, people would use terms like, you know, uh, moving people from being consumers to becoming partners or missional engagers Mm -hmm. um, within the church. Because many times the church can be a place where people just show up because it's such a slick and empowered uh, uh, moment that we all can enjoy but we don't really follow through in terms of that process. And so we started saying, what if we started looking at our people not coming to a program, but that they are the program? And if they are the program, what do we have to change and adjust so that we can not just bless and encourage people, but also equip and mobilize people? And how will we know that we've mobilized them Because now we have to harvest some of those stories and hear what God is doing through them and celebrate what God is doing in the week in their lives when we gather together and not just celebrate the church's program, but celebrate what is happening in the lives of the people, as you say, because what we celebrate, we replicate. So so if we celebrate the right things... We start creating culture and suddenly people start discovering, my goodness, I can do that. You, you mean, that's what you mean? Um, wow, it was that conversation and it was this engagement and this happened at that person's work. And, and so now we start framing it for our people to understand how to connect Sunday's faith with Monday's work. But we also of course, started breaking it down to say, you know, who can we bring together where they could speak in a particular discipline, bring the teachers together, bring the artists together, bring business CEOs together, bring the medical community together and get them to start speaking to one another about how do I exercise my faithful and fruitful presence within my everyday life. And the most amazing things emerge where they start encouraging, blessing, and keeping each other accountable in terms of engaging as a kingdom agent. So that's on the mobilization part. But then there's also an engaging part where we ask, well, what can we do if we did it together? Typically in our ministry, we said education is the low-hanging fruit. And we asked the question, how could we come closer to educational institutions in our city? So when you say the word together... What kind of together is that? I'm talking about this local church. Okay. Because there's certain things that you can do more effectively because you have more gravitas in terms of a community than an individual. Mm-hmm. And you can, you can organize and you can sustain and resource some of those activities at a higher level because now, as a church, you are doing that. Whereas an individual can only do as much. Uh, in terms of their own engagement. So it's different levels. And so we asked the question, we went and mapped all the educational institutions in our city and asked the question, how could we as a church engage in these educational institutions? And then kind of reverse engineered from there and said, well, let's take small steps. We can't go to them all, but what would be the next step? And we started with a few. Right now, we're engaged in 120 
in our city just from our local church in the city of Pretoria, which has now cascaded to other cities where we are involved because we've taken that step to say we can actually engage in this process. That has emerged to become a whole program which we call TREE, Transforming Educational Environments, which now has its own uh, engagements. We actually, this is one of the fascinating things. Um, we appoint now no longer just youth pastors. We, we appoint youth workers that we place in schools. I think in Pretoria we now have 48 full-time youth workers. And they're employed by the school, not they, the church, correct? They are, they are employed by the school, paid by the church. Mm. So we actually pay that, but we don't. A little bit like Colorado Uplift. We yeah. went. Yeah, yeah, there were some parallels. We went to yeah. the community and said, you know, are you concerned about where we are? And we, we have a funding mechanism that helps us to empower that. Um, but you would be amazed how concerned people are about what's busy happening to the next generation. Mm -hmm. And if you come with a plan, uh, a lot of people are prepared to come alongside that engagement. But that didn't happen overnight. We took small steps, yeah. had a few victories. We could go show people. And we had testimonies of some of the headmasters or principals that would share some of those stories. And um, it became an amazing journey of uh, grace within the context of our, our city. And so those are the things that we would encourage churches and church leaders and missional agencies to go and consider. Well, and could you share this too? You shared a story with me earlier that you would actually even commission people to go and do the work in which they're called. And I'd love for you to share that story about the uh, people in healthcare, because this is just an example of one kind of commissioning. But right. man, this is powerful about mobilizing and, right. and people so in, outside of Sunday. We would have these moments where we would bring people in a Sunday setting, in a service, and we would dedicate time to pray over people in certain disciplines of society. And so uh, this particular day, we felt we wanted to pray over everybody in the medical community and had many people from the medical community come to that particular service and spoke on healing, a very simple sermon in terms of um, making adjustments in your life, living a healthy lifestyle, partnering with medical practice that they are actually agents of grace, fighting this incredible challenge of, of medical challenges for people and then trusting God for healing be it the miraculous or just healing processes in our bodies because Jesus is the healer so a very simple sermon and then we invited everybody to come forward for prayer as we do and we just prayed and specifically those that serve in, in the, the medical, medical community field. yes so they came forward it was doctors and dentists and surgeons and and they were all there nurses uh lined up in front and uh i um, share this story to my own detriment because as i as i was praying i had this idea wouldn't it be incredible if these medical people today could actually then just pray for sick people. For their patients. Well, for the sick people in the church. Yeah, okay. And um, 
uh, of course, I, I, I tried to get away from the idea because I thought, man, this is ludicrous because um, I know some of these people and I know they don't ever even pray loud. They don't pray loud for their food. What to say, pray for another person who is sick. And I thought, <laughs> man, it's so crazy because these are medical people. They know what's wrong with these people. They can't have faith to trust God for healing. I mean, it's like they just know what the problem is. Anyway, I couldn't, I couldn't get rid of the idea. And so I, when I finished praying, I said, you know, I'm going to put you on the spot. But if you want to go sit down, you're more than welcome. But if you want to stay, um, I'm going to invite sick people. And if you would be prepared to pray for these people. And so, well, all of them stayed. And uh, as I say, I think they were under a little bit of pressure, but they stayed. And then sick people started coming out of the pews to be prayed for. It was one of the most beautiful and, ministry moments. And you knew moments. that some of these people coming forward were patients right. of some of the professionals that were standing up there I in front of the church, right? I saw them coming to their doctors that were the doctors treating that them. were treating them. Mm. And um, it was amazing to see this and see this doctor just pray and bless and speak life and healing over this individual. But the real moment for me happened about two weeks later when I ran into one of the real recognized surgeons in our city. And he stopped me. And, and, and when he started speaking to me, he was tearing up and saying, Alan, he said, something happened in my life. Something shifted when you asked us to pray for the people that Sunday. He said, I was praying for people. He says, and something shifted so deeply in my life. I'm finding myself now looking at people in a different way. I'm looking at them, asking God, how can you intervene? How can you mm. be present? And I'm finding myself wanting to pray for my patients. And it was like something catalytic has happened in his life. Mm -hmm. what, what did that say to you? Well, I realized as a leader, I needed to trust God to create more catalytic moments. Mm. Because I was sharing a lot of this information, but I wasn't creating enough moments. And so these, these dedication or mobilization or commissioning moments have become very special for us. To commission people, send them, and trust that that moment really is more than just a recognition moment, but a spiritually empowering moment in people's lives where we pray over them to go into the marketplace to go and make a difference. I think there's a, a significant principle that is a common thread here because what's true for the individual is also true for the church. And again, I, I highlight two things. One, what we focus on is what we move toward and become like. And that that's just, in principle, it's just true. But the other principle that's really true is that once you know who God made you to be, you'll know what God made you to do. And that's not only true for the individual, it's also true for the church. And the church, I think, needs to revisit who did God make the church to be? Because once leaders understand who God made the church to be, they'll know what he made the church to do. Yeah, and you said earlier, right, if God is in it, do not underestimate what could happen. And here's how I view it is you 
And the, the awareness, the learning that God brought to you in that moment was your ability to see in somebody else who might not have that belief or that hope that they actually could be that catalyst in the life of others. Right. Right. And so when you have that belief that me, John, Steve, Keith, right, have that ability to actually be a catalyst in that sphere that's around us that just almost feels dead to me or just hollow or like, how does this ever change? But one person with that belief and then God pouring into that, that's that's these little steps when strung together create exponential awakenings, movements, revivals, transformation of cities, and discipling of nations. But it starts with maybe one person having a little bit more belief in somebody else than they have in themselves. We coined the phrase city changes. Mm -hmm. Initially, we thought it's, it's, it's a catchy idea to help our people to understand. For individuals, For correct? individuals. Later, we recognized the profoundness of that statement over people's lives. Mm. We've actually gone so far as to say, you can't really join our church, but you can become a partner of a dream where you become a city changer. And that's our commitment to you, is we are committing. If you, if you want to partner with us, we'll commit to empower you as much as we can to become a city changer. John, I cannot tell you just that simple shift of communication, how powerful that has been to reposition people, to rethink. You know what it does for me when I hear it? It creates ownership. Exactly. It's not a church I attend. It's a place that I go that I'm actually a part of right. because it's I'm doing, because it's like this symbiotic right yes. but i but i but i own my part in the church but i also own what you've entrusted me that you've empowered me to go do mm -hmm. that's exactly and you're also not looking back to me going hey john did you do x y and z you're not looking at my outcome my results right it's not for favor right. i'm going out trying my best even if i'm not very good at it no, and I'm going to come back to you guys, and you're going to go, well, did you do something? Yeah, it didn't work out. Let's celebrate. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, vocabulary is so important because it does all of what you've just mentioned. So we've even done away with the word volunteer because mm -hmm. we said, you know, a volunteer is someone that signs up to help somebody else fulfill their mission. For free. For free, yes. <laughs> it also implies it, it also implies choice. Yeah, yeah. So if you get tired, I mean, if you're a volunteer, mm. you can walk away from it. Good point. But what if you are a called one? What if you're called? How do you walk away from calling? Mm -hmm. It's a totally different way of looking at engagement. And so when we present opportunities for people to get involved, we're saying, not would you come and volunteer to help us to do this? We're saying we have an opportunity for people that have this calling to come and fulfill what God has called you to do. Mm. It's a totally different way of framing it, but it's a totally different way of looking at people. 
Now I recognize the calling of God upon your life. And if there is a place to serve, it's, it's you coming to fulfill your calling. Not me asking you to help because we need more hands in the program. It's simple things, but it reframes the way we, we navigate this whole dialogue. And that's what creates the kind of culture that you have, because language creates culture. Right. So you talked about city changers and the role of the church, and we started out this whole conversation actually talking about city transformation, which has been okay. a... Uh, you know, we're here in Denver, Colorado. It's been on the hearts of a lot of people that were here or heard you speak today. Um, so what does that look like as we take this, right? We have a perspective, a, a worldview, a calling. Um, it, but if I look at the city, the city of Denver, the city of Pretoria, the city of South, you know, where you are in South Florida, right? Right. They're coming from a different place. There's multiple different constituencies and, and sometimes some of the stuff seems really big. And you were able to take this and, and move it and kind of overlay it on top of the city as kind of the third leg of this stool. I'd love for you to share for that what that looks like. Well, really, it is these three dimensions. It's the individual mm-hmm. that needs a discipleship process to be engaged, to become the city changer. It's the church that needs to reframe itself to become omissional. And then it enters into the city. Now, when you enter into the city, you move from your own ego system, which is not bad. I mean, ego is good if it's sanctified. (laughs) And you, you move from this ego system into this kingdom ecosystem, where we realize we can't do this alone. And now we look at who are the other missional agencies in this community that we can collaborate with, connect with, so that we can navigate this journey. And we framed that process, the city process, with three words, connect, collaborate, and celebrate. And really what it means is connect is build relationships. And so we encourage people, leaders specifically of churches or people that are part of the kingdom expression within the context of a city, And we say, would you be prepared to tithe 10% of your time to the city? Outside of just looking after what you are stewarding, your your ministry or your kingdom agency or your business or whatever you're doing, could you sow 10% of your time to be part of a bigger conversation? Building relationships. And it starts by just connecting, sharing life together. It doesn't start with a program. It doesn't start with us sitting around a table and having a boardroom session as to, you know, what are we going to do to change the city? It starts with us becoming... Here's our kickoff meeting. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) It starts with us trusting each other because that's the currency of relationships. And we can only trust one another if we spend time together and get to know each other and and get to work through some issues together and, and build that sense of rapport with one another. And so we've done in the South Florida context, a, 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 put a lot of effort into bringing leaders together, starting with this question, how is it going with your soul? How are you doing as a person? Forget about everything that you're doing. Just 
how are you as a person? And it is amazing for us to see when we brought leaders together that actually were not just far away from each other. They were in certain instances hostile towards one another. They were territorial. They, were, they, 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 they had issues that were history as ministries with one another suddenly become friends. Now, were you going to these people one-on-one first? Let's say you and you knew that Keith and I were really at odds. Were you coming to me one-on-one and then spending some time one-on-one with Keith and then seeing if you could get us to get together to just have a conversation? What, what did that look like kind of practically? Well, practically in the, in the uh, South Florida context, um, there was some one-on-one uh, engagement. Yeah. So just touching base with guys and inviting them into, what if we came around a table? Uh, what helped, as sad as I have to say, in that process is the fact that there was leadership failures in some significant churches in the region. And it opened the door for us to say, you know, if it happened to some of those leaders, how are you doing? And we brought them around the table and said, guys, what if we just went away for two days and, and just shared some life together and asked the question, how is it with your soul? Which we did. And don't you think, though, with everything going on in the world, anybody hearing this in all these hundreds of countries could probably pull together a meeting like that and ask that question? Because who doesn't want to talk about themselves and some of the stuff that they're probably trying to work through on their own in the dark and frustrated. I think if you just have somebody that has no skin in the game in the sense of um, no agenda, agenda, other than serving, you just serving you. to facilitate that bringing them together. That's an important point. You've got to release your agenda. Right. This is a kingdom agenda. This is acknowledging the sovereignty of God's purpose working in this conversation, not any kind of personal gain or recognition or outcome. Is that? Fair. John, that is so good, so well stated, and, and that needs to be communicated when that meeting mm. is convened. So you need somebody that can help people know the rules of engagement. Um, and, and bringing those leaders together, one of the most difficult thing is um, for them not to feel that they have to represent their ministry or present their ministry or somehow posture their ministry in in that space and you have to help them to ease and 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 just become comfortable in in a conversation and that doesn't just happen it takes time so you know it's interesting in in an environment like that i'm actually if i'm around a bunch of peers other leaders right my my ability in the beginning to probably be really vulnerable uh, although I've gotten, I'm very comfortable with vulnerability at this point in my life. But in the past, I'd be very uncomfortable maybe sharing some failures or thoughts that I'm having or right. that I didn't do well. How did you facilitate where people could get to a place of of really kind of some extreme vulnerability? Because that's where real relationship happens. So in the public setting where we have about 12 leaders together, um, Nobody, nobody puts up their hand, even up to now, to say, hey, I'm running with other women, or, you know, I'm smoking pot, or I'm gambling, or I'm whatever. <laughs> you know, that's just not going to happen there. But what it does do is, hey, guys, I'm taking strain. 
I'm, I, I feel challenged, you know, I'm overwhelmed. I'm, those kind of conversations... I'm getting burned out. ...were the easier mm -hmm. ones to navigate. But we knew that it would be helpful that they could have a third safe space. And so in this journey, we have created that. We've actually identified an individual that is now giving a portion of their time to say to the people in the rank and file leadership of our region, listen, if you need to talk to anybody, here is a trusted individual, and we are encouraging you, would you take time? Go sit with them, go process, go navigate them. And they are doing that, which is quite amazing. I don't even know what the dialogue is. All I know is leaders are going and making appointments with this leader, seasoned leader in the region that has now become a fathering figure wow. to which people are going to. That's got to be powerful. A third safe space so needs to I'm be created. So what I'm hearing is let the conversation go where the group is comfortable. Don't force it. Yeah. You're going to develop deeper relationship, more trust. Right. Somebody might come up to you and say there's some things... I really need to talk to, but I'm still not comfortable sharing it with you. And you have somebody that's now become almost this patriarch. Right. Right. That, that's now stepped into this role. But right. through that... Um, to be honest, John, in the public setting, it sometimes causes more stress. discomfort when people are over vulnerable in that space. And maybe vulnerable is not the right word, but it, when they bring things to the too, table, too transparent. yeah, that is unnecessary and that that group cannot necessarily help them with. They mm -hmm. need another space to do that. But what this does is it opens conversation and it be we become friends. And wow, I didn't know you're also struggling with that. And, you know, I promise I'm going to pray for you. And, and they do. And that just creates culture of care. And so we're calling this the continuum of care, where we're creating cohorts. We're actually running 12 leaders at a time, bringing them into the space and taking them over a nine-month period, coming together for a half a day a month in a nine-month period, addressing certain issues in terms of just resilience, family, relationships, uh, some of the things that they struggle with and just opening up that conversation to leaders. So we're running cohorts through that process, but at the same time, we're facilitating this continuum of care. Now, something, because we're going to have to wrap up soon, but something you said that I'd like to kind of end with. You, you said that we are called to bring faith, to bring hope, and to bring love. And, and you were talking about, in the context of the city, when we're talking about collaborating, right, finding those overlaps where we can provide solutions to a secular entity, a, a government that's maybe not even welcoming to people of faith, that actually doesn't even matter if you're actually helping them solve a problem that's really a problem for them. Wouldn't, wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Well, this grid is a very simple grid, and I think it's a very biblical grid. Yeah. <laughs> because this is what we really do, right? Yeah. We, we, these are the mechanisms we engage our world with, with faith, hope, and love. Yeah. And... We've framed that around three questions, saying, could we ask the question, if we, if we had to do something together, what can we change in terms of the lostness of our city? 
What can we do in terms of the pain of our city? And what can we do in terms of the brokenness of our city? And these three things align to these three concepts of faith, of love, and of hope. So we come with faith, we come with love, and we come with hope into the lostness, the pain, and the brokenness. And one of the things we're encouraging unity movements to consider is not just to, to immediately engage in shared activity, but rather to find shared outcomes. Mm, that's powerful. So if we could find a goal that we're, we're moving towards, we can all go back to our different constituencies and approach that in the way that we are comfortable. So when we talk about lostness in a region, and in South Florida, we've recognized it according to the Barna research that it is 3% is committed Christ followers in that region. And so that the church unity movement, which is called Church United, has now decided, why can't we double that in five years? Let's make that our goal. And now everybody's gone back and said, so how can we do that? And now there's collaboration. Some guys are coming together and say, why don't we bring in the Alpha program and work together in presenting Alpha courses in this engagement? And then some of the other guys that have a, a far more uh, direct approach to evangelism would say, no, no, we, we want to have an outreach process and we're going to do this. And, but what's happening now, everybody is doing it the way they feel comfortable, yeah. but we're all moving in the same direction. Now we're bringing alignment within unity movements for missional outcomes. Also with the pain, we said, let's break our... Broward County up into five regions, and you come together and ask, what is the immediate pain in this region? What can we change if we did it together? Some guys chose homelessness, others chose uh, orphan care, others chose the um, uh, uh, engaging of, of people that are elderly and lonely because of the Florida context. Human trafficking. Whatever. Whatever, right? And so they rallied around that because that was the the line of sight engagement for them and then we came to brokenness and we said what's broken in our society if we look at South Florida what's broken and it was very clear that the area of low hanging fruit that is fundamentally needing help is education mm. and so we all rallied around education and now we have an educational forum that's helping us craft how can we engage in educational spaces in a more effective way? Be it the state schools, be it the charter schools, be it the Christian schools, be it the homeschool community. How can we navigate that in a more effective way? And that's what's busy happening in the dialogue right now. So how do people, um, Alan, follow up with you, connect with you, uh, you know, uh, see more about what you're doing? What's your website? Well, they can just uh, go on to the City Changes website. Citychangers.com? Citychangers.org. Citychangers.org. And check that out. They can also check out doxadeo.org. Which is D-O-X-A-D-E-O.org. That's right. .org. Meaning the glory of God. Um, one of the resources that we've put out there, and they will find some resources on those websites... But I think which was specifically designed 
to help people to understand some of what I've communicated is a book called City Changes. And that has, I believe, enough information to help people to navigate this, be it a local church, be it an individual or a city movement. Uh, we've tried to craft it in such a way that that could be helpful. Yeah, and so if you guys go to our show notes page, Steve and I will have a link to citychangers.org and Doxadeo, and also a link to the book City Changers. If you're listening to this, go ahead and order it. Um, and just as we wrap up, Alan, uh, Keith, just what final thoughts with people listening around the world uh, in over 190 countries? Um, what final thoughts are just on your heart that you'd like to share? Well, let me go and say, take small steps. Don't be overwhelmed. Ask yourself, what is your own next step? I often reference the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. He didn't break the bread and, and the fish and build a whole reserve so that the disciples could see there's enough fish and there's enough bread now. He put small pieces into their hands and said, go feed the people. And it must have been very intimidating because, I mean, they had no guarantees, but they started. And as they started, they broke those pieces and there was much left over. So just start. And you said earlier that first disciple, that first piece of bread they broke off was probably pretty small, right? Well, I must I gotta, have been. I'm going to make this half a loaf <laughs> laugh for these 200 people. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. But that's not what happened, right? It's not what happened. As they were breaking the pieces, they recognized something is happening. There's a miracle in my hand. There's a multiplication. Right. All right, Alan, thank you uh, for your time. Thank you for your ministry. Uh, I just want you to know that we'll be praying for you and all of what you're doing. And if there's anything we can do at all to be useful to you. And I truly look forward to following up and, and taking everything that you've talked about here and, and taking that next small step forward for me and everybody I know here in our community here in Denver. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a delight speaking to you here in this room and everybody that's listening. Thank you.